0: Here's a question for you. Are we still a government of the people, by the people, for the people? In other words, is democracy as we know it unraveling? In today's conversation, we take a look at how current events, specifically the Brexit, can be seen as a catalyst for larger shifts in the way government works. We examine possible aspects of that future bureaucracy and we find out that, in some cases, that future is already here. I have to say, this is a good episode. I'm Sean Fallen. Welcome to Pushing the Perimeter. One thing that strikes me about postulating on shifting trends regarding the way government works is that you can't really know what's going to happen in the future. Or can you? I went in search of someone who could see through the fog and offer insights into what the coming decades might hold. It was in this search I found Kat Tully. She's got a master's degree from Princeton's Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs and spent some time in the Prime Minister's strategy shop over in the UK. And most interestingly, she's the director of the School of International Futures. She's a futurist. I think I found what I was looking for. Here's Kat on what the school does.
1: So the School of International Futures is, although engaging with the future, is absolutely about helping senior decision makers make better decisions today. By engaging with the future so in particular we help people to engage with what can even either feel extremely overwhelming uncertainty what the hell is going to happen in the future or people just assume that tomorrow the future is going to look like today so we help them negotiate through that difficult pathway but always with the function and the purpose of making decisions better today either by preparing your organization to be more alert to what's changing, to invest in some of the high-risk, high-return possibilities, and to make sure that you can engage with some of those risks.
0: As you can tell, Cat comes from England. We had the good fortune to sit down one sunny Friday at the offices of the Clearing in DC. By sheer coincidence, something major had just happened on which Cat is considered a notable authority. So, the UK voted to leave the European Union. What's driving that?
1: I think that basically what we are going through is the tail end of a, a, an old political system that is dying, and the big question is what's going to replace it. You could see, you can see what's been happening as a, a crisis of democracy, because basically democracy is, and systems that we vote for four years at a time, and the party political system that was developed at the end of the second world war together with the welfare state that came with it that whole social contract that's all unravelling and why is that that's because we've entered into a period of very high volatility not higher uncertainty than before but i do think that we're under higher volatility and therefore democracy has a fatal flaw in pl- planning and engaging and preparing for the long term, whether it's pensions or climate change, under highly volatile environments, because you just basically squeeze your perspective into the now, the next four years, or one week, two weeks out. So that's, that's one issue. And then what you've also got is uh, a growing set of inequality trends. You've got public services that aren't delivering so well because of a whole series of demographic pressures uh, as well as austerity pressures.
0: What does this mean for the future of governance?
1: If politics is all about aggregating citizens' views about what kind of community they want to have and what values they want to espouse, then the traditional way of having kind of party politics to represent that first of all is no longer working like it did 30 years ago that connection between the population and citizens and the political party machinery has been broken and I, I can certainly speak for the UK there I mean they're now these parties are extremely inward looking and basically turned down a Weberian route if you like and have failed to engage with the business of politics which is to listen to their citizens so what this means for um The future of governance is, well, if democracy, as we know it, isn't very good at developing solutions for the kind of problems that we're facing as a collective, as nation states and as a world, then what kind of governance system will replace it? And I think you have two very clear binary options. Either you go to a command and control approach because you have austerity, you have the need to ration you need you know limited resources because you need to respond effectively to climate crises etc or the kind of conflicts that come over fightings over resources so there are returns for being a strong man and having top, strong top-down controls or you come up with a new generation of what democracy looks like and that is what I really hope that we're going through is the birthing pains of that but by God the, the nature of the, uh, of the people that are being thrown up and the way that all this is kind of playing out is throwing up some ugly faces and some ugly statements and some ugly politics. Yes, let's hope that something good will come out of it.
0: When you talk about the new version of democracy, what might it look like?
1: So I think technology is going to have to be part of it, but also technology combined with face-to-face deliberation. I work with this organisation called Involve, uh, a public think tank in the UK that looks at um, public engagement, and they look at, with emerging technology, how should you best govern the risk? What are the systems for regulation of emerging technology, whether it's bio or GM foods, etc. And they've now got 10 years of experience showing that if you actually have deliberative fora with citizens, they can come up with very interesting uh, governance systems that are more effective than either if you just ask the scientists, the experts, or if you just ask the politicians themselves. So tapping into that creativity, co-creation, is absolutely a key aspect of the future structure. And technology is gonna enable that together with spaces for engagement and so new institutions are going to have to be created to enable those conversations to be, to, to be effective and to be had and to, for the insights to feed into policy making. At the same time, what that requires is a, is a much more narrow, tighter and strategic core of government. Because if you're going to, if you like, if government is going to act as a platform and the content is going to come from more of the non-state actors or citizens, then a government's going to have to be the custodian of the process to make sure that it's not gamed or captured by nefarious interests or just the more powerful But also, they're going to have to see how the kind of pieces of policy join in. So if you're actually consulting on something around energy, how is that going to affect your economic policy or potentially your climate change policy? So that clearer view of the the strategic whole and the coherence actually becomes increasingly important for government. And as a subsequent aspect of that, I think that the civil service are going to have to become even more independent, They're going to be, as I said, custodians of the process. And then finally, they need to probably create new institutions and new spaces for doing that rather than holding that just in the executive. There's been a whole series of conversations and innovations being had at the governance level. And what you're seeing is some very interesting innovation across the world, emerging economies and developed countries around how do you create institutions, government and otherwise, to facilitate effective decision-making for the longer term. I'd like to give you a, a quick example, actually, from the US, which is that your GAO, the General Audit Office, is that right? So they're increasingly looking at that. And this is a really interesting issue, which is, as the audit office... They are therefore going to start looking at different departments and saying, part of us being able to make a judgment on whether you're spending your money wisely and making the right decisions is the extent to which you are preparing for future issues. So that gets built into their framework. So they have a very nice strap-line at the moment that says, from oversight, which is what they did in the 1960s and 70s, to insight, which is what they did in the 1990s, which is to use data to provide insight on improving efficiencies, to foresight, which is where they are now, which is about actually not just preparing for today, but getting organisations and departments that are making policy decisions to help us confront the challenges and opportunities of the future.
0: When you're working with an organization to look out into the future, how do you do it?
1: It's about engaging and listening and looking at drivers of the future and actually picking up on weak signals of that future that's around you. There's a great quote um, which is highly overused by William Gibson, but it is pertinent to explain the endeavor that we do, which is that the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. And so this endeavor of going out to the periphery, going out not to listen at the top of your ivory tower and just to listen to the elite, but to go out and really understand where things are changing, that's, I think, uh, part of the, of the joy of being a futurist.
0: Just to be clear, what Kat is laying out is the coming of a new political paradigm. What remains to be seen is whether or not it will be, as she calls it, command and control, or the next generation of democracy. When reflecting on Kat's position, I started to wonder, where are the seeds of this future democracy already taking root? After all, as Kat just referenced, it's got to be here somewhere, just unevenly distributed, I hope. This led me to the Partnership for Public Service. The partnership is a nonprofit that's devoted to transforming the way government works. They are known for their research of government trends and their programs that develop federal employees in all sorts of areas, ranging from management to human resources. Mallory Bark Bullman is their Director of Research and Evaluation. Mallory has spent a lot of time studying how the government makes decisions and uses currently available resources to work more effectively and efficiently. Many of her insights come from her time at the Government Accountability Office, or as it's more commonly known, the GAO, and her educational background. She has a master's in public administration from GW. We sat down together to discuss some of what stands in the way of federal leaders making better decisions and planning effectively for the future. One thing that strikes me is that an individual's ability to make decisions could be severely hampered by the sheer number of variables they have to consider. Their capacity can only be so much. What do leaders need to know or be aware of when making decisions?
2: It really comes down to three critical things. One being trust, which is critically important because decision-making involves lots of people. And so you have to have trust of smart people with information that you need. Uh, The second is operating across the government enterprise. When you're talking about complex issues, I will say that virtually any complex issue is gonna involve the work of more than one agency, more than one sector, more than one level of government. You need to be able to work across the enterprise and build those relationships and make things happen. And the third is is data and evidence. There's all kinds of systems built into the federal performance management system, the federal budget process, the federal enterprise risk management process that provides critical data. And when new leaders come in, it's going to be a lot about knowing how to leverage those tools that are out there and leverage the things that are already part of the process.
0: The government is so huge and seemingly cumbersome. What is the government doing to effectively manage and evaluate such a large organization?
2: So we've seen models such as the Department of Labor where they appointed a chief evaluation officer and that individual's responsibility is for looking across the organization and figuring out what's working, what's not working. We also have seen various administrations look at different, look at the government in different ways. In in research, we talk about it a lot as picking your unit of analysis. And so under Bill Clinton's administration, he looked at it from the perspective of agencies and looked at really in a focused way on creating strategic plans and having clean audits within the agencies. George W. Bush came in and with the program assessment rating tool looked at the agency look at looked at the government in terms of programs. And during his administration, they evaluated the effectiveness of a thousand different programs, which is about 96% of the responsibilities of the government. Under Obama, we've been looking more at an enterprise-wide level. So as part of the GIPRA Modernization Act of 2010 there's the cap goals the cross-agency priority goals which are high-level government-wide goals that require the responsibilities and actions of many different agencies and then within the agencies you have agency priority goals and strategic priority goals and there's things that are built into the process such as quarterly performance reviews where folks come together to make decisions around data and so the next president will have to sort of figure out wherever he or she wants to be able to look at the government and can learn from these different models or different units of analyses and, and see the best way to do that. But I also think it's going to become about leaning on some of the processes that are already in place that folks know how to do. With the, prefer- with the federal performance management process. I talked about the quarterly performance reviews. You have these priority goals that are intended to straddle administrations. The cross-agency priority goals will go into the first year of the next president's term. And so some of those goals, by design, will just, th- that rhythm is set up to, to keep going. The federal budget process is a three-year process. Congressional budget justifications that agencies prepare are some of the best documents in government, because if you look at it, you get tremendous insight into what an agency is doing. Government is, is huge. It's 4 million people. It's a $3.7 trillion budget. And that is a tremendously large operation. Almost any issue you care about, whether it's clean water, whether it's trees, whether it's education, whether it's national security, whether it's you know international relations or immigration, Any issue is gonna require the work of a lot of people and processes to get things done.
0: What steps are agencies taking to gain a better understanding of its ultimate customer, you and me?
2: Government seeing itself as a provider of services to citizens is, is really important and we find that in many cases, government is working really hard right now to understand what the user experience of the services are. Uh, Agencies are doing something called Customer Journey Mapping, which is actually used pretty widely in the private sector too. And it's really mapping out the type of users of their services and trying to understand what that journey is is like. So if you are a student at a high school, you want to go to college, you want to apply for student aid, what are the types of scenarios that you could be going through? You know, Maybe you do have access to the internet, maybe, maybe you don't. Maybe you have parents who have been through the process, maybe you don't. And try to create those different, anticipate those needs of those individuals.
0: One thing I think about a lot is how the norms for communication are changing. How do leaders and agencies need to adapt to communicate with citizens and its employees in the future.
2: I think one thing that uh, leaders are struggling with right now and trying to figure out is what are different ways to communicate with different generations. So the millennial population I know is much more visual, much more quick to respond, much more engaged, And you also then have Gen Xers still in the workforce, you've got the boomer population, you have folks that are retirement eligible, and a leader has to successfully communicate with all of those different populations. In almost every agency, and and there's one or two where this isn't the case, senior executives perceive things to be going better than the rest of the workforce does. I think millennials need to be really vocal in how they receive information. Someone uh, from Deloitte was speaking on a panel here the other day, and Greg Pellegrino, who heads up their strategy division, and he was pointing out the data behind the number of images that millennials see every day and use every day as part of their communication. And I look at some of the apps, you know, when you look at Instagram, when you look at Snapchat, when you look at all of these different, very visual based forms of communication. Those are things that candidly agencies just aren't using at this point. And I think they're struggling with it a little bit. Part of it is creating a brand for your agency and using some of these channels, such as LinkedIn, such as Glassdoor, such as Instagram or, you know, any of these these sites to create a vision of what the agency is doing. We've seen some agencies get really creative about this. Not surprisingly, the Department of the Interior has great opportunities to showcase Things like the national parks and show that when somebody is processing a grant request or managing a budget or doing some of these more administrative tasks, these are the gorgeous things that they're trying to accomplish. NASA also has not surprisingly done a great job of this of, look, we're trying to put somebody on Mars. That is what we are here to do. And so... I think as leaders get more and more comfortable with social media, with understanding the rules around social media, and with operating in that space, I think they will be better able to engage the millennial population.
0: While we can predict where our government is headed in the future, we won't really know until we get there. If we're going to continue to grow and evolve as a country, we ultimately need institutions that are responsive and adaptable to the complex world in which we reside. In this rapidly approaching future, archaic industrial age thinking will only serve to inhibit the ideals that make this country so great. What's also apparent? We're not alone in the need to transform. Our neighbors, near and far, might learn from our successes and our follies. I'll leave you with this parting thought. In the new, eminent era of government, there are aspects of leadership that will have us thrive.
2: I think the thing that a new leader needs to know and understand is what's there that they can use. A lot of things in government and in our nation are, are there, and it's about bringing it to scale. The partnership frequently says that you know, everything that needs to happen in government is already happening somewhere, and it's just a matter of shining a light on it and replicating it and doing it elsewhere. I think it's about uh, combining the analysis and the brain power
1: of the left side of the brain and actually combining it with the creativity of the right side of the brain. And I think that future leaders need to be able to lead from within and from below and to lead organisational transformation by transforming themselves as well.
0: Many thanks to The Clearing for recognizing the importance of the conversation we're curating here. If you liked today's episode, want more information about the work, or have a question or rebuttal, you can email us at theclearing.com or find us on Twitter, at PerimeterPush. Special thanks to our guests who are out there creating compelling futures for us to live in. Thank you to Tara, the boss, for your support. Thanks to my production team, Ron, Sarah, Ayrton, Megan, and Dan. You guys are awesome. Until next time, I'm Sean Fallen. Now go do something extraordinary.